0: The ability to constantly test your assumptions on plausibility scenarios, I find, often is missed. You spend years and years closing down a risk that you're very concerned about, and then you miss the fact that the environment changed. And so this continuous re-evaluation of what those plausible scenarios are is is really important. It's really hard to do, but for your highest risk, you should constantly be evaluating and testing those assumptions that you've made.
1: Welcome to the Building Cyber Resilience podcast by Resilience. I'm Dr. Ann Irvin, Chief Data Scientist and Vice President of Product Management.
2: And I'm Richard Syerson, Chief Risk Officer. Jeanette Manfra, who you heard open the show, is the Director of Risk and Compliance at Google Cloud.
0: I'm responsible for, for our overall you know, approach to you know, risk management and governance, our product compliance, so you know, certifications, ensuring that we're able to provide our customers and auditors and government entities who are going through their digital transformations with the evidence that they need that we're meeting their risk and compliance requirements. So that's or broadly, broadly what we, what
2: we work on on our team. Prior to Google, Jeanette worked in the public sector, beginning her career in the Army, then moving into cybersecurity defense at the Department of Homeland Security, and then the National Security Council. These experiences have shaped her expertise in helping companies cultivate resilience in the face of systemic risk, an important part of her role at Google today.
0: Data privacy is is definitely a significant part of where we have a lot of regulatory engagement, but we also have increasing requirements around operational resilience and the ecosystem for financial systems and others. How are we ensuring that we're doing what we need to do to provide that resilience, making sure that we have the right controls in place, making those right decisions and those right investments? and making sure that we have good detection capabilities for, for risks and issues, how we manage those, how we govern them. These are a lot of words that people use often that belie the complexity, as you all probably know, of actually putting those things into, into place. And we very much believe in, in doing that in a way that's very transparent, very rigorous, and that you can clearly demonstrate to to anybody. So kind of runs a gamut of a lot of
1: different risks. Today, Google is a household name, but it wasn't too long ago that just having a computer in your home was a big deal. For Jeff Green, he still remembers his first exposure to a home computer.
3: I started out as a kid in the eighties, actually in the seventies, when my brother bought his first TRS-80 computer with 4K of memory. It's my first exposure to home computers and was something of a computer nerd um, through the eighties, but unfortunately didn't study that in college or I, I might be retired now.
1: It's a good thing Jeff isn't retired now, though, as he's doing critical cybersecurity work in his role as Senior Director of Cybersecurity Programs at Aspen Digital.
3: In July of last year, went to the Aspen Institute, where I've been running cybersecurity programs. We have two groups, a US-focused cybersecurity group that's been around since 2017, and then a global cybersecurity group we stood up uh, last year. We do different projects on a variety of of issues. We published one earlier this year on private sector support to Ukraine in, in the first months of the war. We're working on a couple of AI projects. And then we have a third pillar of work with Craig Newmark Philanthropies, that we roughly call cyber civil defense, which is really focusing on the everyday person's ability to help learn about cybersecurity and improve both their personal privacy and data security, and as well as ultimately assisting with national security.
1: Both Jeanette Monfra and Jeff Green have a wealth of knowledge born of experience about how products, technology, and the government intersect with cybersecurity on the national security front. In our last episode, we started peeling back the layers of how government policies and advances in technology impact our nation's cybersecurity and our culture on a global level. In this episode, we're exploring how individuals and organizations can work together to create collective security and ever-evolving cyber landscape.
2: We dive into ideas like utilizing AI efficiently and ethically, the importance of cybersecurity and data transparency for customers and companies in the face of AI and prioritizing cybersecurity from a foundational perspective. We'll jump into the conversation with how Jeff went from self-described computer nerd to national security expert.
3: I studied national security. I was a child of the Cold War, very interested in Soviet studies, graduated in 1990, right as the Soviet Union was falling apart, which turned my degree into history. Um, I ended up in law school, practiced law for about eight or nine years, and went to the Hill in 2005 to work on the Senate's investigation uh, after Hurricane Katrina and stayed on the Hill for the better part of seven or eight years, initially doing the Katrina response. Then I led an investigative subcommittee where we did everything from um, uh, aviation security to border security, uh, really you name it. And that was actually my first introduction to cybersecurity where some of the very Small group briefings on some of the big intrusions, which are all very public now, the F-35 and things like that, Um, but really didn't turn to cybersecurity full-time until 2009, the end of 2009, when a colleague um, asked me if I would help out on one small part of what became the Lieberman-Collins Comprehensive Cybersecurity Legislation, and that quickly became my entire portfolio. I gave away all my other issues in about a month and did cyber full-time in the Hill, until about 2012, when I left uh, for Symantec, a cybersecurity company, ended up running the government affairs program there, Global Government Affairs. Um, I left there in 2020 when the company split up, went back to government. I was the director of the NIST, National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, which is a physical center located in Gaithersburg, Maryland, that brings together the government, private sector, civil society to actually build out concrete uh, solutions to existing, known cybersecurity problems. Um, I was there for a little over a year when at the beginning of the Biden administration, an acquaintance of mine now, Deputy National Security Advisor Anne Neuberger, I was in touch with her and I ended up being detailed down to the NSC for from beginning of March of 2021 through last summer, where I was the Chief of Chief of Cyber Response and Policy, I think is what they call me. Essentially, our directorate was split into an offensive and a defensive side, and I ran the defensive work. So the first thing was the executive order the president signed in May of 2021, 14028, mainly addressing federal government cybersecurity, but had a pretty significant impact on the private sector through some of the contracting requirements. And then I, I ran the White House end of the ransomware response, starting with Colonial and Uh, through my time there, um, and then in the fall, we thought we'd been working hard, and then late summer, early fall, we got very serious about preparations for Russia's further invasion of Ukraine, and that dominated our lives from then through until when I left.
2: When Jeff left, he joined the Aspen Institute, a nonpartisan forum dedicated to inspiring leaders to think creatively about the biggest challenges facing our world today.
3: There's a climate, there's energy. Um, my program, Aspen Digital, has existed for about three years. The cybersecurity element was kind of a stand on its own and folded into Aspen Digital in about three years ago. Aspen Digital broadly looks at the impact of, of computers, digital technology on society, everything from equity and inclusion to emerging technology, impact on the workforce, and then the cybersecurity angle. So my little corner in Aspen Digital is focused on cybersecurity, the impact on national security, personal security, privacy, and the like.
2: Great, that's that's awesome. So you have a broader calling, it's not just cyber, you're within the, the digital function, and that perhaps is why you mentioned AI as well. And I suppose, you know, I just came from the Black Hat Conference, you know, AI obviously was a big topic. In fact, I had the opportunity to go to the CISO Summit and the keynote of the CISO Summit was actually on AI. And one of the things that he said is, well, you know, I, I've been using chat GBT. It just seems like it's getting worse. It's learning on itself. And, you know, I guess Skynet's not going to happen. It's not the big deal. Everyone thought it was. What do you think about that comment, given what you're doing and the work that you're doing? is that, Was that a little bit of a glib statement?
3: I think AI in its current iteration, the generative is not Skynet. It could introduce a lot of other cybersecurity problems. It'll also introduce a lot of cybersecurity solutions, I believe, you know, until recently, I was frequently describing myself as an AI skeptic, not that it's not new and different, but I was struggling to understand how this was truly revolutionary as opposed to evolutionary. I'm flipping over based on some of the things I've seen and and done recently, but generative AI, no, I don't, you know, it it is ultimately math and machine learning and probability as, as I understand it. But uh, you know, who knows
2: what comes next, right? Well, from I, I suppose from a policy perspective, that coming from your background and in what I believe Aspen's remit and influence on the world is, are the concerns from a policy perspective that we're seeing coming out in a lot of DC or whatnot? Do they line up with, for example, that sentiment we just that I just shared, or what you're seeing? I, I guess I'm, what I'm asking for is. Where are you seeing that direction? And I do want to bring it to the intersection of AI and security and and ethics and responsibility and all that.
3: It might sound evasive, but that's such a broad question. There's so many different perspectives or or ways that that generative AI is going to impact society that it, it almost depends. When you think about it from the educational perspective, I have a friend who's a college professor. Another you know, a family member who's, uh, who's been a principal of public high schools talking to them in the past few months about how and whether they use it. But when I, you know, w- With policymakers, um, this to me, and I'm normally more of a pro-legislate, regulate type of person for the most part, I think we need to be very cautious about putting new rules in place when we haven't defined the end state that we're trying to control if we don't know how we're going to use this, it's it's not to say government shouldn't act. I think there are places to step in, particularly protection of children's and workers and privacy and transparency. And I worry a lot about the uh, equitable use of AI, how it could internalize existing biases. I think a lot of that are areas which are really important to work on. I and mean, the, the miss and disinformation piece is terrifying. Um, you know, um, that relies a lot on the resilience of, of the human to know when they're reading bad information um, or generated information. Um, so to try to circle back to your question, I think the, where, you, where one hears policymakers speak up, I think are generally the right areas, haven't really heard great proposals for how we're going to really operationalize the ideas. Transparency is a great idea. How to do it is, is the hard part.
1: Tackling this hard part of AI's impacts on society is a challenge that most companies are scrambling to manage. Luckily, leaders like Google are paving the way in this unchartered territory. Jeanette shares how her team is using AI and machine learning to create more robust security practices that protect customers and companies with transparency as a major driver.
0: We're experimenting, actually. We actually have tested barred out a little bit and some, some tasks just around feeding it some data and seeing kind of what risk assessment it might come up with and right. um, some of those areas. And um, so that's, that's actually interesting. And then we have a lot of other, you know, AIML capabilities um, that, that we've been sort of digging into. We've used some natural language processing to just help us um, scrub through all the certifications that, right we have to meet? And what are some common requirements? So that one of my goals is to not have every engineer have to understand what regulation they're meeting, what certification they're trying to achieve, right? They just need to know what technically they need to get done in their product. And so, and then doing it in a way where you sort of touched on the beginning, that scales. We have hundreds of cloud products um, that depend on a, you know, planet, scale system mm-hmm. and, and, you know, key to Google's a lot of the key to Google's success really is the ability to scale and have these extreme operational efficiencies, technical efficiency. And so some of the things we've been using AI for still with a, you know, a lot of humans in the loop on this is, um, okay, go look at all the different commitments we've made, the certifications we have, how can I normalize these into a set of common requirements that I can, you know, drive across the board across all of our um, uh, products and services, and um, so those are some of the things we've been using. Um, and it, And I think it's 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 really promising, it's really interesting, but there's still a lot more development that has to be done. And um, and you know, we still have human analysts that are that are looking at things. I, w- I would say where we're we're still probably more investing on the automation side to to probably before we fully can leverage all the AI ML, the GRC, we have internal built system and it's, it's interesting um, because it's um, it's actually, we're in the process of, I won't call it, it it is a bit of a re-architecting that we're actually doing now. And if you think about Google such, you know, such a big company, right. With a lot of different services and capabilities, you know, you have everything from YouTube to Gmail to, you know, GKE, right. All of these different things. And, in, in um, and the, while there are absolutely certain things that you can implement as a, you know, a common control across the board, in, in certain ways that will work really well and we can provide the evidence of how that works. There's a lot of very product-specific things that you also need to be able to have. And um, and you want to be able to get into the weeds of how is this control actually working in this particular service. And so that's where we're, we're really focused on that is being able to dive very deep into these product sets, and and in some cases, very um, different tech stacks that you have to navigate. And then we also want to be able to do it in a way where, um, you know, so my dream. So my my team that runs customer audits, Hmm. they can get a question from a customer and they can turn to another team and say, hey, I've got this question. Can you, you know, open open up our our, um, GRC tool? She don't point me to where the evidence is. And then, you know, you provide that to the customer right now. so there's a lot more manual work of, you know, getting into that, that level of detail, um, just because, you know, we want to make sure we have the diligence in there. And um, so your first question, it's all, um, it's, a, it's an internal tool, a, a set of tools, I'll say, and capability that's been built that we're in the process of, of really rethinking and, and redesigning, um, which is actually pretty fun and exciting to be able to kind of walk through that. And in um, thinking about what does somebody in cloud need, a compliance officer in cloud versus a compliance officer in YouTube is also something that we're thinking a lot about. Him.
2: A translation for the security and GRC wonks out there. BARD is a large language model that is scaled on Google's infrastructure, similar to ChatGPT. By using it with their universal controls framework, Google is able to gather and organize information on a large scale. This also supports their zero trust efforts as digital transformation grows exponentially. Jeanette explains how being able to operate and scale using products that provide this level of security and transparency is what customers are hungry for.
0: So there's a couple of things that we think about. One is many of our customers, in addition to wanting to know, you know, walk me through your control posture in this area and show me. And, and increasingly customers are getting very sophisticated. They're understanding this, and which is awesome. i love to have those conversations. So we want to be able to make that visible to them on a continuous basis that's integrated into all of their security monitoring tools and other things, right? And recognizing they've got other clouds, they have, you know, these hybrid environments. And so how can you help integrate into all of that so they can really have a better sense of an integrated risk posture, I'll call it, that's much more continuous versus going through an audit together. So that's sort of one thing that we think about. The other thing is a lot of customers, in addition to wanting to know that for their own risk purposes, they want to know what are your best practices for scaling, modernizing risk compliance, security, and how can we do that? Whether that's like sort of a product-based discussion or more of even just well, this is how we think about governance, and these are you know how we're thinking about our risk metrics and you know how we can sort of think about optimal levels of control investment and that sort of stuff. So those are a little bit more nascent, but increasingly a lot of customers are interested in that. And again, my goal is, is if we're that we're in a position to be providing just that continuous level of transparency to them, um, which also forces us to be better, by the way. Right. But then also... Really starting to think about how we extend our risk governance and thinking of our risk posture in more of a community way instead of this is my risk and this is our customer's risk. I don't know exactly what, you know, how you externalize all of that part just yet. I think right. that's an interesting area to kind of keep thinking about, but at the moment, I think we just want to sort of drive some thought leadership around it and just be honest. Here's some things that we're trying internally. What do folks think? How does that work? So that's kind of where we're at.
1: You know, it's it's sort of easy to think about the governance and compliance stuff as just sort of overhead that may or may not have tangible impact do you have any stories you could tell us or can you riff it all about sort of real the real world impact of this stuff whether it's increasing uptake of particular controls or you know just I don't any anything sort of tangible um, in terms of the impact of uh, yeah, of this stuff. We love to. We spend
0: a lot of time actually on this in that you know the work that we have we do has to enable the growth and value of our business. And in that extends to enabling the growth and value of our customers right who are who are leveraging us for those purposes. And so when we think about governance and compliance it's not as you said, the overhead or checking the box, it's um, you know, in, in the simplest form, it's facilitating decision making that is, and especially in a large organization, can be very difficult when you come up across you know unique risk situations or unique issues, different ways that people are using cloud that you hadn't considered. Um, And so a lot of the way my team, we we stood it up about two years ago, a little over two years ago. Um, And a lot of what we first did was just found where people were stuck because they didn't know how to get a decision on a kind of a gnarly issue that was blocking a deal or blocking a launch or something like that. And so really early on what we did is just said, all right, Let's get legal together, product together, engineering, sales. Let's all get together and just, it sounds super basic, but just document what everybody's issues are, what their goals are. And then let's do an honest assessment of the risk. Oftentimes people are very uncalibrated um, depending on where they sit. And so they are either over- Index, They think the risk is worse than it is because they're not thinking of other aspects of controls that are in place. Um, Or maybe worst case scenario, they're very under-indexed on what the risk is. So a lot of what we did was just early on, we would kind of pull all this together and and we would come up with a recommendation. Um, Much of what I'm trying to do is also instill a culture where people understand that they're a risk owner um, and they have agency, um, but they also have accountability. In this process, um, I am not the risk owner for all of these decisions. And so it, it really became that, okay, this deal is stuck because you can't figure this piece out. What is it we're trying to get to? Why do we think we have a risk? Let's bring all these folks together. And oftentimes you either you, you usually get to what um not my term, but what other people have called is like a yes and of. Yeah, actually, we can do this, but it's not really best to do it this way. Let's do some other things, or hey, we can do this, but let's get this team over here to, to commit to some investment, to ensuring some of this up here. Lots of different ways that you can do it, but those are some of the without you know getting into like the super details of the specific cases, but where we really um, were able to make a lot of progress and gain a lot of trust with people because they recognized that we were there to help them get to the outcomes and to not be a roadblock. And then we've also had a lot of progress on the, um, you, you talked about um, you know, uplifted controls. Back to what I was talking about with helping them understand if, um, if you do you know, these 20, if you invest in these 20 controls, most of them security and privacy, not in resilience this is the bulk of them, right? If you invest in these, these are the markets that find value in that either because they want to see the certification or they just want to see evidence that you're doing these types of things. And so when you can walk them through and say, we have savvy customers, we have you know people who know that they, they want these things. And so if you invest in this area and you invest in the ability to not just do it, but to be able to prove that you're doing it, and to help the customer see it, that is going to translate into business value for you. And it does. It, it absolutely does. Now that no, sometimes there's some things that you want them to do that s- sometimes the business case isn't quite as easy to make, um, but for the most part we we found a lot of we found a lot of positive sort of action by going that route and um, and and it works and it works pretty well.
1: Janet's last point is key. She's teaching her clients about how Google's investment in security has a positive ripple effect on the security of everyone in their network. It can be difficult to make cybersecurity risks tangible to the everyday person, but this kind of product education shows the value and financial payoff that accompanies strong security. Jeff also understands how critical this educational piece of cybersecurity is. I ask him to expand on what he sees as this growing urgency to teach the public about how their individual actions and responsibilities can shape our collective security. I'm really curious about what you mentioned earlier about the sort of, uh, I don't know if you characterize it as a public campaign, but sort of a reach out to the public on individual steps that individual folks can take to understand their own security, their own data privacy, you know, um, sort of how they live their lives and and this digital environment and what they can do to protect themselves and all of us. Um, I'm just curious if you could elaborate on that more. I mean, you know, cybersecurity is sort of fundamentally a human human problem, you know, uh, from both the problem and the solution perspective. So I just, I'd love to hear more about that.
3: The short version of what we're doing, and we're still building it with Craig Newmark, Philanthropies Craig Newmark, who is the Craig from Craigslist, is very focused on this. And um, the cyber civil defense harkens back to the, the World War II communal effort, the Cold War, everyone was in this together. And Craig's idea, which I think is fully valid is that all of us play a part both in our individual security and that adds up and, and helps with our national security. Where that dovetailed with some of the things that I've seen over my career is really in that, in that, at the individual level, empowering people, making them understand that there are very simple things that every one of us can do to improve our security. When I started at Symantec, in 2012. And even before that, when I was on the Hill, I did a lot of public speaking and there was not nearly as much awareness about the um, national security, critical infrastructure implications of of cybersecurity. And I realized after giving these talks for a bit that I was basically scaring people and they were walking away feeling so terrified that they felt helpless. So I, I changed my pitch to try to make clear that most of us will never be targeted individually by a nation state. And with that as the predicate, there are simple things that everyone can do. It, multi-factor authentication or pass keys now, um, simple patching and updating, basic awareness of, of the links you're looking at, the things you're clicking on, putting a, a good security application on your devices. If you do those things, you as an individual are protected against the overwhelming majority of tax out there. Because criminals are fundamentally lazy. They're not in it to work hard. As long as those simple compromises are still working on 50% or more of the people, they're going to stick with them. So you, you want to be in the, the 50% who are not susceptible. And you know, Craig's idea is helping, starting at the education level for individuals, get them both comfortable that they have the capacity to improve their security and then giving them some basic tools to do it. Because it is actually shockingly hard, and I've done this myself fairly recently, trying to find those basic cyber education videos or tutorials online. Uh, so one of the current efforts we have ongoing with some experts from American University is... Identifying some really simple um, tutorials that will consistent will be consistent with things that you know the Department of Homeland Security, uh, CISA, the Cyber Infrastructure Security Agency, they've put out, mapped to some of their priorities. Mobile security also. So it's an overused word, but it really is empowering individuals. And for me, the most important thing is making people realize that they are. They can be in control of their own security and it doesn't take a computer scientist to do these things.
2: Jeff's efforts to empower individuals will bolster our nation's cybersecurity foundation. He shares the cybersecurity areas where he thinks that governmental policies can make a positive impact on our nation and the steps we need to take to get there.
3: If I had the power, the the most important thing for me is um, cybersecurity baselines for critical infrastructure and that was i think you know when i talked to ann about going to work for her that was that was the i she asked me that question and that was my answer then and that's what i spent most of my time there working on but it's more than just saying these organizations these entities need to have appropriate cybersecurity There's also funding. If you look at the water sector, we could put requirements on the water sector tomorrow, but there's still not enough funding given the tens of thousands of small um, organizations out there, the small water providers. So we need to provide a vehicle for them to, to, um, to get to that level of security. doesn't mean we shouldn't put a baseline on them. It means we have to do it intelligently. But a really overlooked piece of it, in my view, is the resilience piece of it, is the capacity to still operate on your worst day. And that has to be an element of the baseline. And you don't have to look any farther than, I don't mean to pick on them again, but the colonial pipeline incident to see an organization that outwardly appears not to have been prepared either for that type of ransomware attack, relatively unsophisticated, or the ability to keep running when the bad thing happens or to recover from it. So they kind of they missed on all three pieces there, which is why you saw the Transportation Security Administration move so quickly with emergency security directors after that to make sure that no one else would be in that place.
1: How do you codify that and stress test that practically?
3: I think what you're asking is how do you actually implementally codifying it would be, you know, most of this is through Congress. We worked real hard looking at existing authorities that the government had um, even before the Ukraine run-up started to say, okay, where are there areas where we can use existing authorities to try to put some kind of baseline in place that may not have been written with cybersecurity in mind, but give us the authority to do that. And TSA is one of the um, did a great job with pipeline security, with aviation security coming out of that. But you need Congress ultimately if you're going to do it at the federal level. There is a lot of, of authority at the state and local level, which is why you saw And I think February, it might have been January of 2022, the president sent a letter to all governors saying, basically, hey, this Russia stuff is real. You have authority. You need to use it now to harden your infrastructure as much as possible. And there was an enormous industry response because of the capacity at the state and local level to put requirements in place. Um, Different question on, on how you make something like that work well. I don't know if that's what you're getting at
1: yeah I guess I meant more how how what are the exercises for organizations to to prove they're meeting the the threshold that you know what are the thresholds and what are the exercises or stress tests or evaluations to to prove uh, compliance
3: so I, I think that any type of of baseline or threshold has to be really outcome focused because every organization is is a little different I can't I shouldn't be telling you you need to have the following firewalls in place to keep your operational technology separate but i can tell you you should have a high enough level of confidence that there's separation between your information technology and operational technology so that if you get compromised on the it side as colonial did you're not shutting down your full ot side tabletop exercises are one way although i suspect you know with no malice or no bad action on their part i suspect internal to colonial they thought the day before they they were secure enough and but when it gets very real and there's software malware locking up your IT side, it gets scary to say I have 100% confidence or high enough confidence will bet the company on the other side. And that's where the resilience piece of the exercise comes into play. Whoever is running that should say, okay, let's assume that it jumps. How are you going to continue running your pipeline or billing your customers or prescribing medication what is the paper or manual system you have in place so that on your worst day your most critical functions are still working and it takes time and money and effort and it seems like we go in this cycle of putting effort into it and then it fades a bit and then heck i saw it within semantic you know we were we always put an effort on security but it was you know sometimes it was up at 11 sometimes it would drop back down and you'd see that fluctuating. And if we're doing that at a security company. I
2: mean. So let's just say I have some inside baseball on all of that in a deep sort of way without saying that. And I'm going to tell you, I think it's the problem that all companies have. And that is a lack of a shared objective around cyber resilience. I know it sounds self-serving because our company's name is Resilience, but I I mean, I've been in the CISO for a long time. I've been doing this for 25 plus years. And I'm going to tell you that the if, the, if there isn't a shared objective between the CRO, CRO CFO, CISO and others on this topic, um, you're going to have more colonials. You just are, you might think, ah, oh, bad CISO. You didn't have a shared objective with the E-team and board. Well, you know, actually I'm going to say that it's a much bigger topic than the CISO, you know, banging his or her fist on the table or whoever the security stucky is banging their fists on the table saying, you're not giving me budget, you're not doing stuff. Like that's the wrong conversation at that point. You, you obviously don't have a shared objective, and it's a it is an e-team really you know responsibility with the board to say you know what hey we're going to take re- resiliency as you stated it being able to keep on functioning as a business delivering on our commitment to the public to our stakeholders shareholders um, if you don't have that in place and you're not serious about it you can say you're serious but if you, know, if you have to demonstrate that you're serious so for example have you gone through the process of understanding what's the value at risk your business exposes to the public, to your shareholders? Have you gone about at least accurately, may not precisely, but accurately measuring what does a real bad day actually look like? What does it mean for us to have a catastrophic failure? Do we know what that means? How long can we go without service before it becomes the kind of thing that is materially impactful beyond the four walls of a company? If that that is not like front and center, if you're not leading with that, for example, a lot of security folks will lead with an assessment. They'll go assess, what are our assets? What are our controls? That's great. I'm going to argue that's actually meaningless if you don't understand what you stand to lose. So, You you can go and invest and generate a lot of heat on your network and do all kinds of great things. But if you don't understand, what do we stand to lose from a business disruption perspective? What do we stand to lose from a data breach perspective? What do we stand to lose from a wire fraud perspective? What do we stand to lose from an extortion perspective, et cetera? Those things, if you're not leading on that and you don't have agreement from the CFO, the CRO and others that, yes, we are going to work together to understand that together, then we're going to put a strategy together to buy that down through mitigations, through risk transfer. We're going to look at our capital reserves and make sure they make sense. If that's not occurring, I'm going to, I'm sorry, like really kind of soapboxing here, but if that's not occurring, you're going to have over and over and over again, colonial pipelines. It's just, it, there's just no other way about it. That's how I think about cyber resilience.
3: agree completely. That was a great, great soliloquy rant and on a lot of levels. Um, and I was I was cautious using the word resilience because I didn't want to look like I was just throwing it out there because because you guys are resilience, but it is such an essential word. But to your point, generally, the old adage of start with the end in mind, you know, doing an asset inventory is not an end unto itself. It is understanding what you need to keep running and the impact import of those. And, and you you may be interested in a product we'll probably have coming out from Aspen in the next month on the evolving role of, of the CISO and what authorities you know, she should have to be able to do the job and what does a good structure look like? Because it, it is not just the person who has to make sure that you're patched and updated. And to your point, if they're not, and part of it is being connected with other C-suite leaders to have that, as you put it, like the shared mission, the shared goal. It is not the colonial CISO's fault that they did not have a plan to do a manual restart of the pipeline after they shut it down. And it, everyone has to be pulling in the same direction towards a particular end. It is defining the end for which you're, you're working on X or Y.
1: Rich and Jeff's back and forth there really hammered home the idea that security is a collaborative team effort. Yes, CISOs carry leadership authority, but the entire team needs to be on board and have a shared objective to gain traction and find success. Jeanette demonstrates this idea by explaining how her team at Google communicates internally and externally about risk posture to make sure everyone is aligned on the same priorities.
0: The cool thing about Google is, and you mentioned the the zero trust history, and one of the reasons I came here is the level of investment and value that Google as a company it's insecurity and resilience is, it's, it's amazing. And, and so you and I know this isn't the case for the GRC folks all the time or security folks, where you, you can be in organizations that don't place that level of value and, and you're sort of fighting an uphill battle. So I do acknowledge that I'm, I'm starting from a really good place where people are already bought in. Um, and there's been years and years of investment. Yeah. So that being said, I think, really what a lot of the the value that I'm trying to bring is helping the organization orient itself. You know, how do we, how do we get that value and that growth for us and for our customers But how do we do so in a way that optimizes a a lot of resources, but still limited? Um, And um, and so that we're doing the right thing for ourselves, doing the right things for our customers. But I I guess what I would just say is is doing it in a way that's like an optimal investment and and framing. I I oftentimes find, again, the cool thing about working about such an engineering culture lots of really cool things to include the, you know, the the many Sweets who interpret regulations. (laughs) Um, But we do tend to over-index a little bit on a very sort of specific technical risk that people have looked at. And so I do often also try to find myself and say, okay, let's take a step back. And that may be an amazing thing to invest a lot of resource into addressing that. Um, but let's take a, let's take a step back and look at what is the risk scenario overall? What is the likelihood of this actually happening? And then let's sort of threat model it, if you will. And then let's start to go down to what are the different kind of control, whether that's technical process, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so that's, that's also a little bit, well, that's actually quite a lot of what we're doing Um, when we look at these different risk domains is that the technical side is usually really, really well done, but we're trying to stitch it together into an overall picture. And then also to kind of, you you know, I've been, I do use the term calibrate a lot with leaders is, are we all calibrated on the same? This is our risk posture, whether it's explicit or implicit, this is where we're at. Is everybody good with this? And I think, that's actually the most fascinating part of, of doing that, and, and just being able to come at it from a from a different angle sometimes than just purely looking at the technical aspects of what could be done.
2: Um, I love it. You're saying all these words though. You're saying calibrate. You talk about opportunity. You talked about you know you talk about money things. Are you doing formally some form of cyber risk quantification, or or is this more informal?
0: Um, we are it's still something that we're, we're developing wherever you have these sort of really big, um, complex problems that involve change management and all sorts of stuff. I like to try to attack it from different angles. On the one side, we are you know been going through an effort of defining what are our key risk indicators, what's the risk appetite, those sort of standard things that you wanna get set. And so people have those guardrails. We know what this is, what, meet, what a critical issue threshold is. This is when we're going to be putting this up for various decisions, who has those decision rights. That's really important work to do. You suss out all sorts of interesting things about the organization leaders for sure. And then, you know, just scorecards. Hey, here's all you're doing on your vulnerability management. You might want to improve here. You might want to sort of focus efforts here. We initially did sort of an overall risk assessment, set our risk register taxonomy, all, again, all that usual stuff. And so we really kind of focus on the traditional risk that most people do. So scorecards every month. Hey, general manager, here's how your products are doing in these areas. And that's really, I think, just good from an operational, let's get these pieces together. I do have somebody who's also working on building out a cyber risk economics capability so that we can really get to much more of a quantifiable way, which again, will lead to automation and the AI ML because if you don't, have that sort of deep rigor and methodology you're not going to be able to use those tools in the future. We want to go slowly though. In the government we've tried to do this several times. It can go sideways, you can go down all sorts of rabbit holes. And so we want to we we want to kind of look at A couple of areas and um, a couple of security metrics and and really dive in and prove out um, some statistical modeling, see how that works. That's a good thing about being at a company like Google, being at a large company, too, is you can you can experiment with these sorts of things. And if we get it right and we can scale it out and it works you could start to change the entire ecosystem of how people are thinking about risk and measuring it. And um, so we don't take that responsibility lightly as well. um, But it's cool, it's exciting.
2: Jeff's closing thought on resilience underlies just how important this work of developing, attacking and prioritizing risk measurement is, not just at Google, but at all organizations. The ecosystem is constantly evolving. Will you be prepared for what comes next?
3: Again, I, I don't mean to, coming back to the resilience piece, I think that is an important place for cybersecurity policy and thinking to go. It is taking the, you know, we talked about zero trust before, assuming trust no and assuming the uh, the breach, getting organizations to really do the hard, non digital planning for how to manage when things shut down. Um, and I'm hopeful we can, we can drive that in, whether through the SEC or other ways. And I'm not sure if the changed geopolitical environment will help us push that forward as well. But you know, there's, there's been a lot of information coming out from the US government about potential threats to critical infrastructure from nation states. And I think it's important that people take that seriously and plan for it now.
2: We're hearing AI everywhere. It seems like it's table stakes for everybody. The real question I think we need to ask ourselves, particularly as security and risk practitioners is, where is AI helping us to beat the bad guys more efficiently? Where is it giving us scale? And when I think back to what Google's doing, for example, with the universal controls framework, being able to have really artificial intelligence connect the dots between various control frameworks, various tools, activity and whatnot to really simplify that is just a huge fundamental, not just cost savings but risk management improvement. And when I think about as well as policy as it relates to artificial intelligence, in fact, just more security generally, as I think about what the future will hold, I'm really, really excited to see how we can Be both ethical, responsible, and efficient in our use of AI to protect ourselves and not expose ourselves more broadly.
1: I really loved hearing both Jeanette and Jeff talk about how cybersecurity is really fundamentally a human problem to be solved. And we really have to rely on not only entire teams at organizations to protect themselves, but the entire public, you know, across our entire nation, uh, to sort of understand this challenge and and make sure that we're doing the right things to protect all of us individually and collectively.
2: Thank you to Jeanette and Jeff for their time, expertise and valuable insights, and to our production team at Come Alive Creative.
1: And thank you for listening.
2: Follow the Building Cyber Resilience podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. We'll catch you on the next show.